0: Today is a real treat. We get to hear from Mrs. Allison Earle, who is not only the other teacher of the upper level humanities at Lighthouse, but is also one of the co-founders of Lighthouse Classical Academy. Today, she explains to us the nature and the fallout of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, which is a bit of a misnomer as we will find out. This was originally recorded on January 19th, 2021. And so without further ado, let's listen in. She's going to talk to you about the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918-1919, and I'm so glad she's doing this. So, for those of you who don't know Miss Earl as well, um, she's married to a doctor and her background is physical therapy. So, it's, we basically have two physicians married to each other. So, <laughs> this is much more her wheelhouse than it is mine. And she could also answer more specific questions that anybody might have about that. So, thank you
1: thank so you. much and take it away. All right. Boy, it's nice to get to see the fronts of you. I'm, nice. I'm just. Been watching the backs of your heads for a year and a half, so I get to see your faces again. Um, this is a fascinating topic, at least it was for me, um, getting to do the research on it. And there is still so much we do not know about this pandemic from 1918, 1919, even though it has been researched up one side and down the other they have even taken archived autopsy tissue. And that's how we now know from studies on the, um, the genetics of that tissue, that's how we now know that it was the first H1N1 influenza outbreak. So it's a fascinating topic, and we'll just get right to it. So this pandemic began, at least here in the United States, on March 4th in 1918 at a little camp called Camp Funston, and it turned out not to be too much fun after all, in Fort Raleigh, Kansas. Just after breakfast, a U.S. Army private by the name of Albert and yes, that is spelled correctly, Gitchell, reported to the base hospital with cold-like symptoms. And, oh, by the way, he was a camp cook, which meant he handled the food for everyone else. Just file that one away. So, he showed up with, you know, your typical bad cold symptoms, sore throat, headache, fever, um, little bit of chills there with that fever by noon of that same day 100 more of the soldiers there at Camp Funston showed up at the base hospital with the same symptoms so this these mark the first reported cases emphasis on the reported part there reported cases in the United States Um, for this particular pandemic so uh, a week later there were reported cases in Queens New York so already in seven days we know that it had spread from Kansas to New York State and they were not happy by April just uh, the next month, there were widespread reported cases all over Western Europe, all over Asia, and all over the US. Now, this is what's interesting about this particular outbreak is that it popped up simultaneously on three different continents. It showed up in Asia and North America, and europe all at the same time
0: so like as if
1: it happened on purpose Uh, well it would it would almost appear that way but they didn't have the sort of um knowledge that we have now when it comes to genetics they certainly understood biology enough to know that you could intentionally spread diseases uh, But it was not. They didn't really have effective delivery systems back then. So
0: you're saying they couldn't just like put somebody on a plane and fly you over to Asia? Exactly. Right.
1: Right. It took longer.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now you could certainly put someone on a ship Mm -hmm. and end up infecting the entire shipload of passengers. Could definitely do that. Um, You could also put someone on a train and infect everyone on that train or that subway train, uh, which they already had subway transportation in New York, New York City. There were two very large deployments of U.S. troops to Europe in both March and April of that year, 1918. And by June of 1918, there were about 31,000 reported cases of this same influenza-type illness in Great Britain. You see, a lot of our troops, that was the the jumping-off point. They would be deployed to Great Britain, and then from Great Britain, they would then cross the channel to Europe. By the end of the summer, Of 1918, there were reported cases, and again, these were just the places that reported cases in North Africa, in Russia, in India, in China, in Japan, the Philippines, and even New Zealand. Okay, and all of that is just between March and August. Of that year, 1918. So uh, this was a uh, an ocean jumper. It it was um, easily spread. It was, as we will see in a few minutes, also quite deadly. So you, I don't know if you caught the title, the deadliest enemy. Just by way of preview, this killed more people than World War One.
0: That's that's an impressive statistic, considering yes. that there, we have a couple battles in World War One mm-hmm. that to th- this day yeah. are still the bloodiest battles with the highest body count of any recorded war. Right. And, and you're talking about this flu killed more like all yes
1: of those yes right that is right yep okay. now I'm just gonna give a minute more for y'all to copy down um, while y'all are still writing a few things down this gives you a very brief the handout the timeline a, a brief outline of just the progression in this all right so just some quick facts about the so-called spanish flu it began in early 1918 officially and was over by late 1919 it did not originate in Spain. But because Spain was not really involved so much in World War One, not like some of the other countries were, and because their press was not so closed off, they felt uh, very free to report about this outbreak of influenza-type illness all over. So... Spain the Spanish uh, press was really the only group that was reporting on the progression of this influenza Uh, so that's how it became named the Spanish flu but it did not originate in Spain Uh, and as I mentioned um, earlier it killed more soldiers than died in World War one and up until uh, last winter early spring um, before the announcement of the arrival of SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 it was the latest major pandemic so it had been about a hundred years just over and this is a photograph of an elevator operator in Seattle and notice the um standard issue mask being worn there there are tons of photographs of people wearing masks from this um pandemic i did not receive one of the time oh items. well let me give you one
0: here
1: okay Awesome. And I can make more. And I just have to point out, too, we just don't do carving like that anymore. Oh. That beautiful woodwork there. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So here's a little bit of vocabulary uh, just to distinguish between an outbreak, an epidemic, and a pandemic because those terms have been thrown around a lot in the last year. So an outbreak is a sudden rise in the incidence of a disease, usually within a particular area. Now an outbreak, uh, that term could be used to apply to a school, or a church, or a town. Um, but it's usually a smaller geographic area or a, a group of people who are somehow associated with each other. That's when we use the term outbreak. Uh, I think there's even a movie set in Atlanta by that title, um, Outbreak. An epidemic... Is defined as affecting a disproportionately large number of individuals within a population, community, or region at the same time. So an epidemic would just cover a larger area or a larger number of people than just an outbreak. So there have been countless epidemics throughout his history that might affect a single region or a single country. Um, and there are just too many to count. And then we have pandemics. And, and that that root pan means all or complete. So a pandemic is one that spreads to multiple continents. An outbreak of disease that occurs over a wide geographic area, such as multiple countries or continents, and typically affects a significant proportion of the population. So this is just one way we distinguish uh, between the number of people that are uh, affected by a particular disease. So we have before had uh, outbreaks in our local schools um, here in Carroll County of particular illnesses. Some years it's um, a stomach virus. Some years it's influenza. Um, Some years it's just, you know, an outbreak of strep, you know, kids passing strep around. Uh, so we can have localized outbreaks anytime, any kind of uh, biological, contagious, um, infectious microorganism. It can be bacterial, it can be viral, it can be fungal, it can even be hopefully not protozoal because that would mean it's in the water. And we don't want that. Uh, then an epidemic. We've had, you know, we've risen in some years um, in the annual th- influenza season. Uh, we've had numbers that reached the level of epidemic every now and then here in our own country. Uh, back, oh, around 2010, 2011, that, that range, uh, we had, uh, I guess you could call it an epidemic here in our country of not only the seasonal, the regular annual influenza, but we had a secondary wallop with swine flu. It was no fun. I rarely get sick, but when I do, I make up for lost time. And that year I had both versions and I was student teaching. (laughs) So it was, it was interesting. (laughs) Now, pandemics, what we are experiencing right now with um, whatever you want to call it, the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, that has certainly reached the level of pandemic because it's on every single continent. Uh, Well, I'm not sure it's on Antarctica. Just go over there we could, right? I know. You no. Know, take your parka. <laughs> Insulated parka. You're you're going to need it. All right. Now, those of y'all that have had me before will remember if something's in blue, it means you don't have to copy this down. So this is in blue. This is just for I guess it's, I was going to say for fun. I don't know if I really use that term to apply that to this. <laughs> so, um, one of the books I found uh, is an encyclopedia of plagues throughout history. And it has a timeline in the back of all these different outbreaks of, through history. I mean, from BC, way back when. So I stuck the modern novel coronavirus in there, just so y'all could see where it is in the lineup. In red are the uh, recorded reported number of deaths due to this particular, I only went with pandemics. These are only pandemics. I didn't even bother with outbreaks and epidemics. These are just the pandemics. So, the, now see this one, the Great Plague of Milan, back from the 17th century, that's going to get bumped off the 10 worst list now because of COVID-19. But there were uh, reported a million deaths due to uh, this plague. Typically, if we see one that's plagued, um, you know, you, it could mean the Black Death, but it could mean some other different things. And we don't always know exactly what they meant by plague wasn't always the same thing it's kind of the way we throw around the term virus or cold you know it could mean a lot of different things so as of the end of last week the novel coronavirus uh, has claimed the lives of two million people worldwide so we just hit that marker um, I think I heard that on Friday, Thursday or Friday, last week. The Hong Kong flu, uh, and this is fairly recent, um, between 68 and 70, claimed the lives of somewhere between 1 and 4 million people. We often see this sort of range because they're not really sure, especially if it overlaps with an annual outbreak of influenza or some other combination of illnesses. So they're, you know, the reporting, especially coming from China isn't always solidly accurate. So one to four million uh, for that. Uh, Cholera. So this is a real problem. As you can see, it is considered to still be an active pandemic because it is both India and Indonesia where it's most prevalent Um, there are certainly sporadic outbreaks especially if there's a natural disaster like an earthquake remember the awful earthquake in Haiti a few years back okay well after that earthquake there was a horrible outbreak of cholera in Haiti and it's a waterborne illness so you know Water that's just not suitable for consumption is where they get it from. So uh, that has uh, claims about 95,000 lives every year, cholera alone. And then the Antonine Plague, which historians think was a, either measles, smallpox, or an awful combination of both, which took place uh, in and around Rome, Italy, uh, between the year 165 and 180, claimed about 5 million lives. Then the third plague, as they call it, which they believe was the bubonic plague in China uh, between 1885 and 1950, claimed 12 million lives. HIV and AIDS Which began in sub-Saharan Africa, Uh, they consider that still to be an ongoing, active pandemic, and it has certainly spread to all the continents. Uh, Has at this point claimed somewhere between 25 and 35 million lives. The Plague of Justinian, one of my favorite emperors. They uh, had, they they think, historians think that was the Black Death, like we see in the 14th century uh, Europe and Asia, um, which is Yersinia pestis, is the name of the actual uh, bacteria that causes this illness. So that was the entire Eastern Roman Empire at that time, and and it claimed 30 to 50 million lives then the spanish flu comes in the lineup and this is a conservative figure of between 40 and 50 million there's some estimates uh, up to 100 million uh, lives lost because of this flu and then uh, the new world smallpox outbreak here in the americas 56 million and most of those were indigenous peoples um, that lost their lives in that uh, outbreak and then the black death which still holds first place uh there's a reason why historians call the 14th century the calamitous 14th century this is one of the biggest reasons why so this affected europe and asia that we know of Two hundred million died in that pandemic. Okay, so years? Uh it was that's when it was at its roaring height. There were still little um pop out outbreaks um here and there for years and years and years um to come for, you know, there were and there still it is not gone i mean every year in the u.s there are reported cases documented diagnosed cases of the plague here in the u.s they're usually in california or washington state pacific side of the country and they're frequently uh whoever contracts, it has usually had some encounter with squirrels. (laughs) I'm not kidding. (laughs) Okay, the 1918 influenza pandemic in a nutshell, that's about as small of a nut as I could fit it in right there. Uh, It lasted roughly 18 months, which isn't that long. Uh, That's one of the interesting things about it, considering what we're gonna learn in a few minutes about the waves of this pandemic. First reported cases um, pop up in March of 1918, and it's pretty well worked its way out of the populations by September of 1919. But there's a little interesting side note here. Back, and I'm, I appreciate that Miss Angela has a timeline up here. Back in um, 1915, okay, notice we're in well into World War I in 1915, there were in certain areas of Europe in particular, and a few in the US, there were some pockets of these outbreaks of this same type influenza illness and it had some unique characteristics which is why in retrospect medical historians have been able to go you know those might have been early cases of of this same H1N1 influenza which was the mother of all, literally, the mother of all H1N1 influenza strains. So, might have been some even before uh, 1918. Because of the archival autopsy tissue that has been studied and the, the sequence, the genome in the tissue, we now know that it was H1N1 and that it was a novel influenza, just as we are experiencing a novel coronavirus. Uh, they're both viruses, and uh, you have the influenza family of viruses. You have a coronavirus family of viruses. You have rhinovirus family of viruses. So they, they all there are different families of viruses. So within those families of viruses, you will find very similar characteristics from one exact strain to another. Um, Almost all of the coronavirus family of viruses cause uh, upper respiratory illness and usually some gastrointestinal involvement as well. All of the influenza type A pandemics that have occurred since 1918. They are all descendants of that H1N1 influenza that infected all those people back in 1918, 1919 pandemic. They're all descendants of this one. And that's why it is still being studied. They're still trying to learn and discover more about this in order to understand our modern versions of the H1N1 and all of its offshoots, like H3N2. And here's another very odd thing about this particular influenza its geographic origin is still to this day unknown. Usually you can pinpoint at least a continent where it it has its origin. And then it spreads out from that epicenter, infects that continent and then hops, you know, to another continent. But this one seem to pop up simultaneously on three different continents. And that still just buffaloes the medical medical historians who study this. There were three waves. Most um, authorities consider it to have had three waves. Some sources will say there was a fourth, but it was a much milder, less organized fourth wave in 1920. Most texts just stick to the three main waves. But what's interesting is that they were in extremely quick succession. In fact, the downtime between those three waves is almost imperceptible in the number of cases in some in many places around the world. So some places around the world really had almost no break from this influenza once it got started. And I'm going to talk a little more about the waves in just a minute. It was very transmissible. So it had a very high transmissibility, meaning one person could infect several different people. And there was a lot of talk about transmissibility in the early stages of the coronavirus uh, here and uh, people were scientists were trying to figure out well so how many can one person infect no and if we can get that they call the r-naught down to below one we're good because that means that one person who's infected will and you know has less than one chance of infecting someone else and then the CFRs call is a abbreviation for the case fatality rate there's been a lot of talk about that too we won't really know what the CFR is for the novel coronavirus until we're about five years out and we can look back and really um, analyze the data but for um, where we are right now they they've lowered the CFR for the novel coronavirus. It's down to maybe 2%. You know, there was some fear in the beginning that it was going to be as high as 10%, which would mean that, you know, if 100 people were infected, 10 of those people would die. That's pretty high. For this 1918 influenza outbreak, the case fatality rate has been estimated to be somewhere between 10 and 20%. That's high for any sort of uh, outbreak. So it was not kind to people who were infected with it. So if you consider that one third of the global population was infected, and then consider how many people died, up to 100 million, then that puts us at that 20% um, case fatality rate marker. Okay, the three waves. The first wave, the initial wave, was uh, began in March, uh, so spring of 1918, and lasted through early summer of 1918. There was a tiny little break, so the cases went down a little bit at um, the end, toward the end of summer in 1918. And notice too, this did not start at a time of year that is friendly to an influenza virus. That's another interesting feature of this particular pandemic. The second wave was a beast the second wave is the one that is believed to have claimed the most lives the third was also very deadly um, but the second one was really the worst it began in late summer of 1918 lasted through the fall of 1918 so about september to november and here's another interesting thing It was in both northern and southern hemispheres. Because usually our flu seasons are opposite, just like our seasons are opposite. No, this hit both hemispheres, northern and southern hemispheres. Another uh, odd oddity about this particular um, influenza, in the second and third waves it had what we call a W curve. And this is, um, this is used to show the age distribution of deaths. Most uh, contagious illnesses of this nature, or influenzas, have a U-shaped just distribution of deaths, meaning that the young, the very, very young, young children, and the very elderly have the highest fatality rates. But this beast of an influenza, it was killing people in huge numbers in their 20s and 40s, between 20 and 40. So we're talking the working age group, the parents of young children age group. And this has been uh, one of the greatest mysteries of this influenza is why was it killing young people? They're usually the ones to survive an infection with an influenza. So there are a lot of theories out there and no one's uh, really you know, latched onto a particular one yet and said this is it. One theory is that the, um, more, the older population had an acquired immunity that helped them weather this influenza better than the younger population. Uh, there was an outbreak of what was called the Russian flu in the life, during the lifetimes of this group of people. So the older population at the time, you know, 45 and older, were likely, at least in Europe, um, to have been exposed to the Russian flu at some point. That's one theory. Another is that uh, the young population, because they have robust immune systems, that their bodies mounted such um, a severe cytokine storm that it killed them. Uh, Now, a cytokine response is normal, normal part of our immune response to an illness. But this is a cytokine response on steroids. Actually, if they had had steroids, that would have helped, but they didn't. But this causes a massive inflammation throughout the body, and in particular, the lung tissue. And this is something that we've seen with the novel coronavirus as well, is that cytokine storm was killing young people right and left in the early stages when it was a more virulent form of itself. Another possibility is, I'll get back to aspirin toxicity in a minute, genetic mutation. All viruses are master mutators. They mutate left and right. So the thought is that, well, maybe, instead of mutating to a form that's less virulent, maybe it mutated into a form that was more virulent guess it could happen Uh, troop movements are also thought to have contributed greatly and now back to aspirin toxicity the patent on bear you know the company bear aspirin bears patent on aspirin had just run out before the outbreak of this influenza and so the um the american journal uh, american the journal of american medical association jama recommended high doses of aspirin and said that it was safe we didn't know that what they were recommending the amounts and we're talking like A handful at a time we didn't know then that that was a toxic dose and that it would have the boomerang effect of causing a lot of um, pulmonary inflammation Uh, so a lot of these young people who died they died quickly a lot of them had been given a lot of aspirin and their lungs were more wet it wasn't like a bacterial pneumonia. It was just a wet, it's like they, they drowned. And then there was a third wave, very similar to second wave in its lethality, that came around in the winter, uh, January, February of 1919. Uh, this is just a notice that went out uh, to the US Naval forces, um, giving them some advice. Avoid persons with coughs and colds. Avoid common drinking cups. Don't expectorate promiscuously. <laughs> don't stand close to another person. Can we say social distancing? Avoid poorly ventilated rooms. Avoid crowds. Spend a lot of time outdoors and dress warmly and don't get wet feet. And that was the Navy's advice. These were their mitigation strategies. Uh, Wear a mask, avoid mass gatherings. The infected should quarantine themselves. They also created isolation wards in hospitals. There were makeshift hospitals all over the place. This looks like an opera house. It became an influenza hospital. Um, the commissioner in New York City asked that businesses stagger their business hours to lessen the crowding in the subways. That's smart. And they closed ports. Australia did. They're like, ah, nobody in. <laughs> and it's kind of easy when you're your own economy. I know, right? Like, Goodbye world. <laughs> yep, and they could, they could and they did. <laughs> And I can send this to y'all. Yes, mm-hmm. we'll make Post- sure that
0: this gets in if you're yeah. dropping pieces. Because I think this is close mm-hmm. to the end. It is. Yeah, alrighty.
1: This is a photograph of a barbershop in Cincinnati. Notice. That does that look familiar? familiar? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is what we're seeing. Why does it look like the guy in the chair looks like he just got in a
0: fight?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, there's no telling. And in hindsight we know the death toll was very high 50 to 100 million people the US death toll was 675,000 far more than lost their lives in the war the economic toll was enormous because of that W curve because it took out the slice of the population that was the the main caretakers for the young and the elderly, and were the workers. A lot of
0: your specialists, too, of different
1: Oh, yes. Um, That's why the nursing assistant program was started, because it was such a shortage after this pandemic of nurses. Mm -hmm. And then the suppression of the news of the pandemic caused a lot of distrust. India was hit hard, Mm -hmm. and that also helped fuel their desire to part ways with Great Britain. Here are Red Cross volunteers making masks for soldiers. Mm -hmm. And your references there, in case you want to look any of this up for your own. I hope y'all enjoyed that. Thank you.
0: That wraps it up for this episode. Thanks so much.